on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Brian Orr about evangelical process theology. So we cover all sorts of topics like what in the world is evangelical process theology? When did it come on the scene? Why did it come on the scene? What sort of denominations or confessional streams might be particularly susceptible to it? Who are the main thinkers that dominate this sort of process theology? Who is Thomas Ord? What is his role and contribution in this? And so much more. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that is devoted, dedicated, and all about serious thinking for a serious church. And as we say on every episode, to remind both ourselves and our listeners and to encourage us, it's in being serious, we want to pursue certain intellectual virtues because we think that's part of what serious thinking is. And so we just carved out a couple of them. Charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism. That's not everything that's in there. And I recognize that not everybody who listens to us wants to be confessional. I get it. But you can at least say, yes, I want to be cheerful. So if you're 50% of the way, you know, we, we can still be friends, even though I think given enough time, you'll find that the water's just fine and that you'll like being a confessional thinker because we think it's, uh, it's a really helpful tool to help us give us a home base, give us sort of some parameters, almost like a sort of a way to just think about things, a template that helps us to categorize and understand what Scripture teaches and how we should apply it in real life. But we're not going to talk about all that right now. I am pumped to introduce you all to Dr. Brian Orr, because we're going to be talking about his new book entitled A Classical Response to Relational Theism. It's subtitled A Reformed Evangelical Critique of Thomas J. Ord's Evangelical Process Theology. So I'm pumped about this for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them being, you've got awesome endorsements on the back, which tells me it's legit. You have Matthew Levering and Thomas Wynandy. And secondly, I've actually read a good portion of this, and I found it super interesting. So I didn't know like anything about Ord before I read your book. I had never read any of his stuff, besides that like you know he's got some, for lack of a better term, some unique or interesting takes on the nature of God and how it relates to the future and free will and all that sort of stuff. And he's pretty far out there. And I didn't realize how far out there he was until I read your stuff. So like denying creation ex nihilo, I was like, wow, I didn't think people actually did that. So that's fascinating. Um, so I'm super excited to talk about all of this, uh, including just the big bucket, you know, evangelical process theology, all that stuff. So this is going to be fun. Brian, before we get started, though, give me just 30 second bio for the people who don't know who you are. Give us some context. What are you doing? Where are you at? And then once you're done with that, give me the reason that you decided that you wanted to write your dissertation on Ord. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. Um, as you said, my name is Brian Orr. Um, I'm a pastor at Sovereign Way Christian Church in Asperia. I'm actually bivocational, so I do have a full-time job. I think kind of like Jordan does, right, where he theology is kind of like on the side. But, um, but um, I'm blessed to be in a church where we have a full-time pastor and I have another co-pastor that's bivocational as well. And so us three just kind of handle everything. And that's a really good setup. But um, I came to came to faith late in life. I'm 42. The Lord saved me when I was 30. And uh, I just knew that from the get-go I wanted to be involved in ministry and then ultimately ended up going into kind of the academic side of things. But um, to to your, your question about Ord, um, yeah, I never heard him either. Uh, it was kind of funny how that came up. It was originally how everything started that I knew I wanted to do my, my doctoral work around open theism, but open theism was kind of 
kind of fading away these days, kind of fading out. Um, and then somebody suggested it to me about Ord, about his kind of views. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. Let me check him out. So I started reading the stuff. And I thought, wow, this stuff definitely needs a response to it. And so Ord ended up becoming, you know, my, uh, my what do you call it? Not my arch enemy, but um, it's funny. Our last names is Or and Ord. So it's kind of uh, kind of funny there, too. Well, let's start with a, a definition of evangelical process theology, and maybe it will be helpful to, or maybe it won't, I don't know, but we're at least going to try. Um, maybe it would be helpful to situate it on a spectrum. You mentioned open theism, um, and then situate it alongside some other uh, views on the doctrine of God and things of that nature that folks are going to be familiar with, just so we can get a lay of the land before we get into the details. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so so open, the, open theism is a, is a view of, of Christian theology to where the future is open. It's it's not settled. Uh, it became popular in the early '80s due to really some guys having issues with with foreknowledge and, and the future being obviously like the questions being settled to where things were already done and there was no option to go otherwise. And so that became a movement itself, a very kind of kind of not really a small movement. It kind of started off with only a handful of guys, but it kind of grew to become much more of a force, especially rolling into like the two thousands. And uh, as as pretty much the Orthodox tradition responded to it, open theism, in a sense, has kind of been more on the lower end of of being a threat, if you will. Um, a lot of a lot of good stuffs come out to to respond to it. So, um, to so my point, I wanted to do doctoral work. There really wasn't kind of maybe more more uh, area for me to really kind of kind of work through. But then I met some guy that was an open theist, and he just mentioned to me about Thomas Ord, and he's been this kind of up and coming guy, and, and really having some pretty pretty obtuse views of taking of moving beyond open theism to what he calls relational theology because he has issues with one that open theism isn't consistent enough that's what that's what it was and that was one of the critiques against open theism is that it was not consistent right you can't have a view of foreknowledge of god but yet the future isn't isn't settled right that was a, a big thing so ord's like hey i want to be more consistent open theism as it is now does not centralize love and god and ultimately, I need to break away from that. So he was willing to say, God is not sovereign. He, de- he denies creation of Hilo. And then obviously, he has some other kind of aberrant views of things that he's developed on his own to even having his own uh, pretty much solving the problem of evil. So Ord is a very robust uh, writer, very great communicator, um, is really um, has no problem with going against the grain. And so uh, ultimately, that would be a really good, good thesis to, again, to offer a response to this from a classical view. <clears throat> so... One thing I want to know about, I mean, when did this all come on the scene? So I, you know, I don't read a lot about open theists or process theists, you know, in the early centuries of the church or the middle ages or even in the reformation. I mean, I think you've probably have some like outliers. So just talk to me a little bit about like, what made this so popular? Are there any denominations or particular confessional streams that might be interested or more susceptible to this area. So, I mean, is this tied up with the enlightenment? Like what's the sort of the history behind it? Yeah. Process theism was kind of a, a response to kind of post enlightenment thinking uh, started with a guy named Alfred North Whitehead. He was a, a philosopher at Harvard and it was really a response to the scientific naturalism that arose in the 18th and 19th centuries, which dismissed all notions of supernaturalism. But but process theology, though, is a form of naturalism, actually. So that's important that people don't think that it's not. It is actually a form of it. But unlike a materialist view, uh, Whitehead took religious and moral experience very serious, giving it legitimacy to basically an experience we have with God and creation 
and with creation and God kind of kind of together. So basically, it adopts a coexistent, co-eternal God and world dualism. And so man and the natural world are grounded together with God, and they participate in God's development. Now, the thing is, that was always very uh, on the on the fringe. I mean, process theology really up until, I don't know, the 19, 1990s or so, even, even early 2000s, was considered um, a very liberal liberal view to hold. I mean, I, I say the open theists like Clark and Sanders would say, Process theology, process theology is heretical. Like you won't even consider it being part of evangelicalism um, because of where it stands. Um, now, kind of moving forward with it from from Whitehead, because Whitehead again, he wasn't really a so much of a Christian, but more of a scientist. But he understood that there was a, a standpoint of this relation with the universe. Um, Charles Hartshorn, who was his as a assistant, came on on the scene later on and really developed it thoroughly to where he, he elaborated on the doctrine of God, aligning it more with the God of the Bible. And so Whitehead had, had a view of God as an organism, whereas um, Hartshorn, excuse me, took it and made it what he called a single actual occasion, basically that of a, that of a living person that has two natures, a dipolar nature. I never heard of that, but kind of kind of weird stuff as you hear. I mean, my first time going through this, I was really tripping out. Um, it sounds kind of like, I mean, to me, it sounds almost like you're listening to Mormonism. It sounds very, very kind of kind of strange. But but Hartshorn did not like the classical God. He liked this God that was absolute, immutable, infinite, abstract, and basically impersonal. So he came up with this this concept of God having two poles. One was his absolute pole, and one was his relative pole. So the absolute pole kind of since protected God as he is, whereas the relative pole was God's interaction with creation and that kind of thing. And so, like I said. The issue of, of, of the creator-creature distinction is very blurred with this, and that was one of the key reasons why um, it's not part of, really, of Christian theology. It's always on the outside. And so now we have folks like, like Ord who sees, sees aspects of process thought, and he weds them to his background, which is Wesleyanism. <clears throat> so, because one of the main reasons for process theology to, 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 be, um, to exist was to combat, really, the problem of evil. That was like the biggest thing is that the, the, the current classical view or the traditional views of God, the problem of evil is a problem that we can't get around. So we, therefore, we need to come up with a, a theology or philosophy that can pretty much put the, put the hammer on the nail and, and end that issue, which is what process philosophy has done. So maybe you can, you can lay out for us um, some of the, the big ideas in Ord's thought. Um, and obviously, I know you're going to respond to those, but just so we can get um, an understanding, how does he understand... Um, God's love, the way God relates to creation. I know it's on the other end of the spectrum from a classical view, but just maybe more specifics about what it is that he is putting forward. Yeah, what I'll do is I'll give a statement of his that kind of really makes it very nutshell, and then we'll kind of move on to some other things. But this is basically what, what Ord, this is, these are the qualities of process theology that Ord uh, finds attractive. He says, one, God is relational. Prayer changes things. God made us free. God is not responsible for evil. Community and individuality matter. And the contemporary issues must be engaged in love reigns supreme. So these are the key things that he adopts from process philosophy because it, he recognizes a lot of weaknesses, which I, I want to be fair and give those too. So this is, this is, again, this is from Ord. He recognizes in process thought that scripture is not always considered the principal authority. Uh, process theologians have not done well in laying out what the role and authority of the church should be. Uh, those of process persuasion are, are mostly associated and engaged with social ethics from the liberal side of the political spectrum 
And then last thing, and very importantly, which this is the reason why I also kind of wrote this, is that process theology lacks a robust and coherent doctrine of Christ and the Trinity. That's a, that's a big, big issue. And, and the guys have tried to actually, from a process perspective, try to write on those things. They've had to kind of come over more to a classical side to write anything that is coherent. But as soon as they've done that, they pretty much ousted themselves from being process theologians. But um, but for Ord, uh, let me let me kind of roll down through here. Um, so how about I'll give his main contentions with classical theism and then kind of express what, how he responds. That sounds good. <clears throat> so, yeah. His biggest issue is that classical or traditional theism does not make love primary in God. His issue is that the models of classical theism that pretty much we would hold to says that God is coercive. But he the problem is that Or defines coercive in a very in a manner that we wouldn't define. He defines it as God completely controlling another. Completely controlling another. So his whole theology is a response to that. His view is that God only works through indirectly compelling or persuading another physical body to act accordingly to his will. But even then, it's a possibility. It's never anything where he's trying to force him to, to do an outcome. Because he believes that one, that God cannot actually impact another physical body. Why? Because God doesn't have a body. And that's where the process metaphysic really comes into play. Um, so as far as his love goes, <clears throat> we think so. There's a term you, you asked me the question, maybe we can jump to it about essential kenosis. That's going to really kind of explain things. So essential kenosis for Ord is it's an ontological expression it really defines the essence in the in the being of God. So what it really affirms is that that God is involuntarily self-limiting, whereas other models would say that God chooses to limit himself, in, in Ord's case, <clears throat> excuse me, by nature, by nature, he is self-limiting, which means he is self-giving all the time. And so that's been a big point for Ord where he moves he moves beyond any kind of kenosis theology in that perspective. And so for Ord, um, self-giving is, is logically primary in God. It's, it's who he is. I mean, God, I mean, he says that love is primary. He elevates love as an attribute among all the other attributes. So he actually separates it out that way. Everything that he does is grounded in love. Now, obviously, we live in a time and, and place to where that's a really catchy. When you, I mean, you know, Ord, Ord is a Van Hooser calls him the love theologian. His books that he writes are very popular. He's a very good uh, speaker at the school seminary he was at that he unfortunately for him was um, was kicked out for holding to um, evolution. But he was 12 years in a row their best teacher. I mean, like people like love this guy. He speaks all over the world. So his ideas are captivating. How he presents are very captivating. And who doesn't want to talk about a God of love, right? So like regardless of all the other stuff behind it that you and I and, and uh, you, well, yeah, you and I would, would see as problematic, that whole thing about love, the way it's being presented, people just chew it up. They really do. So, so for him, love is the is the, the forefront of everything, and, and all the other theologies that are behind it fall short because they they do not hold love to be supreme. So I think it's fascinating that he was removed for teaching evolution and not any of these other things. <laughs> That's uh, I've got my priorities a little bit different than that uh, school does apparently, and. I agree, though, with from what I've seen of Ward. He seems like a really cool dude, really engaging and interesting. I mean, I've been on Zoom calls with him and a bunch of other people, so he seems like really nice and interesting. But one thing you said that just does not make sense to me in, in any way is when he's saying 
God can't, like, I guess, coerce us because he doesn't have a body. Um, so I guess I have, it, it seems to me that this is like the interaction problem in the philosophy of mind on steroids, where there's this problem with dualists who basically say, well, how in the world does the soul interact with the body? So I guess now it's how in the world does God interact with anything in reality except for stuff that's spiritual? So does he, I mean, obviously I think he has to say that the, a soul is there, but if he, if he posits a soul in human persons, then God could coerce that, couldn't he? So, I mean, it seems really confusing to me to say that God can only interact with, with uh, spiritual stuff and not bodies. So, can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, even we, we can push it back, Jordan, and say, how did he even create anything? How did he create a material universe? If he can't interact with anything that's physical, how do you even do that? I mean, the, the reality is there's no answer for it. And that's where they go back to the idea that, that God, is, is, is a common phrase, that he lures people. He persuades people. So he puts out possibilities and through the spirit-to-spirit connection, tries to persuade them to make a certain decision. And that person, by their free will, can choose to do it or not. And that's how he would respond to that. And here's the thing, and this is an important piece. I'm still kind of, I think, answering Brandon's question is that, that because of Ord's theology of love and being self-giving and not able to coerce in any situation, that means that God is off the hook for the problem of evil because basically what it is that the problem of evil exists, but it's not a problem for God because God can't do anything about it. So therefore he's not culpable for any part of it whatsoever. And that goes back to the ontology of God not being able to interact with any kind of physical body. So he cannot stop even a falling rock from landing on a girl's head. And he says that in one of his books. That's yeah, that's the kind of view because God has given freedom because freedom is ultimate. Freedom is ultimate. You know, God's loving nature, as Ord has framed it, and freedom, those two things have to go hand in hand. And I think I find it very interesting that, that freedom is always this part of what love means. When, I mean, for example, he, he has created a, a view of love that's very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, constructed to his own, gosh, I can't remember the word. But anyways, he's, he's, really, he's really narrowed a view of love. When, when you actually look at, theologians that have written, have written books on God's love, it is multifaceted. There, there's so many parts to it. I mean, when, when Ord, Ord has his own definition, it says that basically that God is self-giving, uh, basically wanting to make sure that he promotes uh, well-being. When you read Psalm 136, I have it open, it says in verse 17, he struck down great kings, his faithful love rules forever. He has slaughtered famous kings, his faithful love endures forever. How does that promote well-being for those guys? That's the thing, and, and so there's 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 too much where Ord has, who's overlooked a lot of scripture to come up with his definition, which is very problematic, and it's very kind of, I'm going to say it's kind of arrogant. It's it's yeah. Arrogant. Does, does he just start and assume with his definition of love? Because it seems like, like you said, there are a lot of definitions on hand. And same thing with free will. I mean, there's a lot of ways to cash that out. Does he just say? I'm taking this to be sort of almost like primitive and just assuming it from the beginning. Yeah, he does. He looks at some theologies of like Bart and um, a couple other guys and just shows how their views of love are very hooked to a God that ultimately is, um, you know, coercive because really what happened with him is that he, he came on the scene strong as a, as a Christian and then coming across a lot of issues in public discourse about God, it really held him, held him back from moving forward in his faith. He, he was really kind of like stifled by it. And then not just trying to trying to 
how can I resolve this issue of knowing that God is loving, but I'm seeing all these issues in the world. And so he ends up taking a class on process theology and then bam, that, that solves it. Because remember, process philosophy came about as a response to the problem of evil. So it's already arbitrary. It's already arbitrary out of the gate. And Ord adopts that perspective wholesale and then again marries it up with his Wesleyan with his, with his Wesleyan background. And then bam, here you go. So in his writing, how much interaction is there with Scripture? Because there just seems to be a lot of passages that just on the face of the way the passage reads, I mean, Job and the prophets and... I mean, there, there's just too many to even think about uh, naming right now that would seem to situate God's relationship to evil um, in, in a way that just does not fit with the um, what he is putting forward. Is he just dismissing those passages altogether, or or is he uh, trying to exegete those passages and just coming to a different conclusion that we would? Yeah, he's 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 overlooking those passages, just picking the ones that matches theology. I mean, like, for example— there's a in my book. I don't know if you, I don't know if you got to not Jordan, but I have these have a section on called God strikes, and so this is where I go through about ten or twelve passages where God strikes down, you know, a person, you know, David's child, right? Where God directly does that. And you only you won't find one of those one of those references at all in, in or his writings anywhere whatsoever. Then even the typical ones of like Isaiah 11, right? Uh, Acts two, Acts four, those aren't even even engaged with. The one he does engage with is Genesis 50 verse 20. But he does it. He does it in a book called God Can't. And and what he says in that book is very fascinating. He said that God squeezes, he squeezes um, in his decisions to get good out of evil. But and he actually uses that term. He squeezes. But we just have, we just talked about how God can't do anything to a physical body. So how can God actually squeeze anything out of anybody if the person ultimately can't be squeezed? <laughs> So pretty wild, pretty wild stuff. Yeah. So as I think about all that Ord's saying and doing, like, is there anything that you would say, I guess maybe it's, he gets this right, or this is useful, or at least um, this is helpful in causing us to explain things better. Uh, maybe, Maybe that's one of the benefits of his view. It's a lot of times, you know, we're not clear on stuff until we have a good, I guess, theological almost opponent to some... I don't want to paint him as an opponent, but mm-hmm. in the way of... It forces you to clarify what you actually think. So maybe that's the benefit. I don't know. Well, are there benefits to what he's saying or doing? You know, it's funny. When I saw that, that thinking about that question, the first thing I said was, I don't see any. Um, but, you're, to, but to your point, though, there is a point that, you know, I, I believe the Lord brings these things about so we can refine our theology, refine ourselves. Not saying we have all the answers and that we are the, the numero uno, but I mean, obviously, we, we come from a tradition has engaged with various ideas throughout the years that we've had to address and we've addressed, you know, pretty, pretty consistently. Um, I think if anything, what this has done is it, especially for myself and also I see in general that it's forced us to go back to the great tradition. It's forced us to go back to looking at the consistent theology that has been, has been there through, through the various peaks and valleys of the Christian faith or is able to do what he's doing because much of that was pretty much put to the wayside. I mean, that's 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 the reason. That's the reason why you know his, his book, um, uh, the Uncontrolled Love of God, which is his, his main book that really kind of fleshes this out, through published by IVP, was Reader's Choice book of 2016. Like, I mean, this stuff's like like popular stuff. You know, people read it, but because there's no background to it, like you said, there's no you know, the 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 generation that we live in, or I mean, more than that, the times is is a historical. 
And we, we know there's a, there's, a, there's a resurgence to go back to a, a great tradition of classical theism. Uh, there's a lot of books and theses and articles and coming out that really trying to recover these things. And so all this does is pr present a platform, I think, for that to really transpire and to show that there's a history that we need to go back to if we're to move forward. <clears throat> Do you have any other um, resources that you think you would you would most like to recommend to the listeners who would want to? Obviously, we want to recommend your book, but um, any other good places to go for somebody who wants to either learn more about process uh, thought or um, maybe some other critiques that are out there. Yeah. Um, so Ord's books, I would definitely you know, recommend to learn. I think like, like Jordan was saying, like I think the majority of people have no background really in reading this stuff. And I think if anything, if, if you have a good theology, you're going to read this and you're going to be like, what is going on here? So uh, I, I would say that the best thing to do is to, is to read some of the work. So Thomas Ord's The Uncontrolling Love of God um, his other book that came out before that was called Nature of Love. And then his, his most recent one, well, I'm sorry, it's second to most recent. It's called God Can't. And uh, that's a pretty, pretty enticing title, God Can't. And basically, God can't, he can't stop evil. He can't, he can't do anything about it. So there's, and there's one that's really good. It's a multi-author process, open theist dialogue work. It's called Search for an Adequate God. Really informative, probably one of the better ones um, to kind of go to because even though you know they're open theists, they're really traditional on a lot of things. So you can, in a sense, kind of feel like you have part of your team in there, if, if, if you will, kind of bringing up some of the same issues that you probably would if you were to engage with with um, process the, the uh, process philosophy. Um, a process source to read, I would say, a Christian natural theology by John Cobb, and then um, Hartshorn's small book called Omnip Omnipotence and Other. Theological mistakes. That's kind of an older work, but those would be kind of good ones to, I say, to kind of get your feet wet on on process theology, um, from either from the original, not original, but yeah, kind of founding guys up to where it's at now and in Ord's writings. So one thing I want to know is, do you think Ord is influential in any? Maybe it's American or European or African or any context. Is his work? making inroads and making people rethink their own theology now? Because at least in my context, I don't see his name pop up a lot. So like, where is it that he's really influencing people? Yeah. I mean, the when I first started studying his work and looking at, if you go to his website, like his speech engagements that he has for the year was really impressive. I mean, going to Oxford, Manchester, going to various universities here, he's, he's spoken a lot of places. So there is that, um, that people want to hear from him. I know that when I saw him, was I've met him in person and talked with him. Kind of a funny story when I went to go see him speak at a, at a church. Uh, my supervisor uh, just said, "Want to remind me of that member? I'm not seeing the devil incarnate because <laughs> we we're just kind of like, you know, adversarial." But um, he's a very gifted communicator. I mean, he's persuasive the way he talks, and he's not confrontational with people. If people bring up issues, it's very much like, oh, "Okay, it's very interesting how you see it that way." Like he's He's a very charitable kind of individual, which makes him, you know, a guy like that, it's uh, it's hard to want to, I guess, go, go kind of hard on him, if you will. But I think as far as the influence goes, I know that, like, his book, God Can't, on Amazon, was rated, like, in the top 10 for, like, Christian spirituality and Christian, um, um, uh, what do you call it, like, psychology. So I know I know that there is a there's more or less going to be more of the of the people that are you know the the, the pew sitters in a sense 
because his views of love, like I said, people that are not really um, have, a, have a background in, in, in theology are going to be really caught up in it because he really, he writes very well for the layman. And that's a very enticing thing to want to pick up where you can get a book that's simple and it really confirms a lot and it's not too weighty. Um, and yeah, so I think his influence definitely is there. I know talking to uh, a couple years back, uh, a, a friend of mine that was attending a, a, a school out in the, I think in, in Illinois, is a Baptist school, I think, in Illinois, and just saying how pretty much the majority of the students that he knows are like relational theists. So there's like this understanding of like, okay, you know, nobody, nobody voiced the name of Ord, but they are really involved in, in a relational theology. And then the local college actually have the, the local community college, the religious studies department has, I think, eight professors and five of them are graduates of Claremont School of Theology, which is the bastion of process theology, which I find that kind of very interesting. So it's still more of a liberal thing. Um, I think even in Ord circles, the theology that he is teaching is is more more pervasive there, but more in a, in a traditional sense. I think there's going to be too many red flags from pastors or any kind of good theo nerds that would come across his books and be like, hey, what is this stuff? We need to uh, not be telling our people about it. I mean, I just looked on Amazon and it's got 308 ratings on that book, which seems like a significant amount. Yeah, I mean, and for it's us, four and a half circles, stars. That's yeah, in our circles, that's huge. That's huge. You mentioned how he was easy to talk to, and that he would um, he would listen to objections. Has have you ever seen him? Whether that was in a conversation with you, or just you've seen him in some other um, Q and A format, someone bring up a weakness um, in his views, and that that he actually admitted was a weakness, and maybe something that he needed to tidy up in his in his writing and his thinking. Yeah. Um, when I when I saw him in person, he was doing a talk, and then we talked for about twenty minutes. Um, afterwards and we had a q a and and so I, I mentioned to him a question about genesis 50 verse 20 um in his discussion he just and he kind of paused he just kind of said you know he says you know what i never thought of it that way that's very interesting and that's all he said <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of it you know he didn't he didn't come back with any kind of debate that kind of thing he just just took what i said and said it to me but um in our discussion i mean like i say i was very very critical of his work super critical and this guy, we, he would email me. He would send me. He would send me audio attachments of, of questions that I had that he'd respond to. He was always just constantly getting back to me on things, and so he was just so charitable uh, that I learned a lot myself from just even him as a theologian. Even though I don't I disagree, he was just a guy that definitely kind of models what a good theologian should be like, as far as how it, how charitable he was in the engagements with my stuff. Because, like I said, I my my ultimate goal, what I wanted, it was probably maybe too much of a too lofty of a goal. I had wanted to write a thesis that he would read it and sign off and be, look, okay, we disagree. We disagree, but I, I, I recognize the work this guy's done. And when he tried to read it, he told me he couldn't stand it. <laughs> he couldn't, he couldn't stomach it. Um, so, I mean, what I get, it's very critical. But all to say he was still very charitable, um, but that, but, but to your point, Brandon, that was my only interaction was seeing him at engagement uh, at that one time speaking. And like I said, he's, he's a charismatic kind of guy. And he speaks very well, and he's very he's a very caring kind of individual, and so people people are going to lap that up. Yeah, I mean that makes I, I do respect that. So people who are able to engage people who clearly very much disagree with each other and yet be cool about it is something that is worthy of respect. Though I 
do wish, I mean, it, for me, if you're a serious scholar, you're going to engage critiques of your work in substantive formats. So it is a little unfortunate that it doesn't seem that that's happening. But with that said, I'm curious, in, in your opinion, what are the best, I mean, besides your own book, just critiques of process theism in general? If someone said, I want to learn, so we've talked a little bit about some resources on just process theism in general. If they want to say, I want to learn the flip side, something that's critiquing it specifically, showing some of the deficiencies, what would you say are the go-to resources there? There's one book. Um, it's by um, Basinger. It's called a, I think it's called a, a, a view of, a, a view of, hold on a second. Let me find this book. I want to butcher it. Uh, Mm. Sorry, guys. I should have had it out already. Uh, it's all good. Oh, it's called it's called a process view of divine power by David Basinger. It's an older is an older book, and he was kind of really one of the first ones to come out and really challenge it. Um, but other than that, uh, honestly, there isn't really a a book out there besides mine from a classical view that really engages it in the in the, in the manner that I do. Uh, okay. there, there could be some on the rise right now. There could be some articles. Um, but in, in in my research, I didn't find a whole lot. Maybe, again, just challenging very specifics, but not the full-orbed kind of really doctrine of God type of type of critique. Yeah. I know it doesn't – Bruce Ware has like two books on it, but obviously he has – he's got several deficiencies that I think are serious. But – His are more open. His are more open. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Because those guys that did makes, all that work with open theism. But process, not really. Okay, that totally makes sense. And where where does Clark Pinnock fit in this spectrum? Is he? I haven't read a lot of his stuff. Is he like a hardcore process theist? Because I know he used to be like not at all, and then he like slowly changed his mind across over time. Yeah, so he was not a hardcore process theist. He, he at first he said process theology is heretical. I mean, right out of the gate, but he definitely adopted and he liked the views of love and of divine power that the process model offered. And so he was definitely very sympathetic to that. He was one of the contributors in that book. Um, like I said, that, that one I named earlier, which I think would, I think that probably one of the best books, even from a critique standpoint to your, to your point, the search for an adequate God, that was just a really, really good, good piece on, on, on that. Uh, looking at some critical views against process and the process critiquing uh, open theism, which again, there are some views that we can align with in there that we, that can resonate with us. Makes sense. So last thing I want to see if you have any advice on, obviously Ord's account seems to hinge significantly on his account of love. Like if you just take his account of love, then maybe it makes sense. Um, but I don't want to take his account of love. I don't think, I don't think it's coherent. I don't think it's consistent with scripture. I don't think it makes sense philosophically, all that. So are there any resources on like cashing out a, more distinctively classical or reformed account of love, or is when you want to when you want to understand how do we should we think about God and love? Is it going to be sort of you find bits and pieces in different resources? Yeah, you're going to find it out there. Um, a, a couple a couple works. I mean, you know, John Peckham has a book on love, uh, which is definitely uh, very very detailed. I mean, his dissertation actually was like 900 pages long on on love. So yeah, very very long. So he, he made a few. Books Whoever his advisor is must hate him. <laughs> Then you know what? <clears throat> Another good book on love, which I, Lord willing, plan to maybe dig into a little bit more and really kind of bring it out, 
is Agape and Eros. That's a really good book um, by, uh, I just forgot the guy's name. Oh, shoot. It's an older book, Agape and Eros Love. And so that's, that was actually one of the books that, that Ord critiqued very heavily. Um, but actually, look at it. It's a, it's a very classical, reformed view of, of love, how God, in a sense, God's love creates the relationship between him and a creature. And so that was a very, um, uh, very good, good book to read. And then um, Nothing Greater by uh, Van Hooser is the editor of that one. It's got a bunch of series of essays on there, which is very good. And then, um, let's see. Sorry, I should have these. I would say those ones are, are, are really, really good. There's one written by um uh gosh what's his name i'm sorry guys i'm, I'm blanking on all these people <clears throat> i think leon leon morris has one on love as well between yeah between testaments which is a very good book as well so i'd recommend those ones sweet man well this has been super helpful so i uh, appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this and I know all of our listeners are kind of nerds about the, this sort of stuff. So what I'll tell you guys, go find a copy of his book. It's affordable. He didn't publish it with Oxford University Press, so it's not $180. You can actually not have to sell your left arm uh, to read it. So go find a copy of it. I'll link to it in the show notes. You can buy it. He does a lot of really interesting stuff. We, we didn't obviously get into everything, um, so that'll leave some interesting stuff for you. So just as a reminder, it's called A Classical Response to Relational Theism. Just click that link. Go buy it. He does some really, really helpful work here. So you're going to learn a lot about what process theism is, as well as how we should think about potentially uh, going against it. So what I found nice, he's got a whole chapter on scripture and metaphysics. I think that's foundational to when we think about these sort of things. So recommend Brian's book. Go check it out. Go buy a copy of it. Read it. Enjoy it. I think you'll be blessed by it. Be encouraged by it. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.